0: Hello and welcome to the History of Tammany Hall podcast, episode 11, the interview at Weehawken. Two small boats set off across the Hudson River from the west side of Manhattan at about five o'clock on the morning of July 11th, 1804. Their destination was the dueling ground in Weehawken, New Jersey. Aaron Burr, sitting vice president of the United States, and his second, William P. Van Ness arrived first. The two men set about clearing out the dueling ground, which was overgrown from lack of recent use. They, along with some of Burr's closest friends, had spent the preceding night at Richmond Hill, the vice president's stately home in today's Greenwich Village. According to eyewitnesses, Burr slept soundly through the night. Alexander Hamilton, only a few years removed from being the second most powerful man in the United States, and his second, an old comrade from the Revolutionary War named Nathaniel Pendleton, arrived around 7 o'clock alongside Dr. David Hosack, who had agreed to serve as the duel's medical observer. Though the former Treasury Secretary's primary residence was the Grange, in the upper Manhattan neighborhood that real estate agents have now christened Hamilton Heights, He had spent the previous night at his house on Cherry Street. History does not record how he slept. It was neither man's first experience with dueling. Burr had previously met Hamilton's brother-in-law, John Barker Church, who shot a hole in his coat. More tragically, Hamilton's son, Philip, was killed in a duel some three years earlier. This duel was the end result of disparaging remarks made by Hamilton in response to Burr's ill-fated run for governor of New York in 1804. As we'll soon discuss, Burr had been abandoned by his own Democratic-Republican party and was desperately seeking Federalist support for his candidacy. Hamilton viewed this prospect with horror. He had long harbored deep reservations about Burr's character, When push come to shove, Hamilton would prefer a Republican victory in New York to a Federalist party under the sway of his longtime rival. In April, just weeks before the election, Hamilton made his views of Burr abundantly clear at a dinner party of prominent Federalists in Albany. One of the attendees, a certain Dr. Charles Cooper, related these remarks in a letter to Hamilton's father-in-law, Philip Schuyler. According to Dr. Cooper, Hamilton called Burr a, quote, dangerous man and one who ought not to be trusted with the reins of government. More mysteriously, Cooper added, quote, I could detail to you a still more despicable opinion which General Hamilton has expressed of Mr. Burr. Somewhat frustratingly, there has never been a satisfactory explanation of just what Hamilton's despicable opinion was. A copy of Dr. Cooper's letter was somehow obtained by the Albany Register and published in that newspaper on April 24th. While rumors of Hamilton's comments may have reached Burr at an earlier date, we know for sure that he received a copy of this article by June 18th. By this time, Burr was distraught by the demise of his political fortunes and ready to lash out at any of his many tormentors. Hamilton's comments were relatively tame compared with some of the abuse Burr took during the gubernatorial campaign. Yet, Burr convinced himself that his honor and tattered reputation demanded an explanation for this insult. Several weeks of of intense but ultimately futile negotiation between Burr-Hamilton, and their two seconds now took place. The two principals made use of all their skills as lawyers and writers to try and pin the blame on the other. Neither demonstrated much interest in compromise. Jorge Luis Borges once described the Falklands War as, quote, a fight between two bald men over a comb. For being uncharitable, we could say much the same thing about the Burr-Hamilton duel. The two men were still only in their forties, yet they were both acutely aware that their best days may have been behind them. They were both victims of the rise of the all-conquering Jeffersonian Republicans. Burr had been effectively hounded out of the party he had done so much to establish as a national force. Meanwhile, Hamilton's beloved Federalists, had been relegated to permanent minority status, and were well on their path to extinction. Both, then, were desperate to grasp at any opportunity to lift their flagging careers. Neither man thought his reputation could survive a further blow, and so they found their way to the dueling ground in Weehawken. Two shots rang out in quick succession shortly after 7 o'clock in the morning, Hamilton's shot was high and well wide of the mark, possible evidence of his previously stated refusal to take aim at his foe. There was no such doubt about Burr's intentions. The vice president's shot hit Hamilton directly above his right hip. The bullet pierced his liver before embedding in his spine. Everyone froze as Hamilton fell to the ground. Burr gasped and took a step in his rival's direction. Van Ness grabbed the vice president, covered him in a coat or an umbrella, and ushered him back onto the boat to New York. Dr. Hasak, who had been waiting by the riverside, rushed to the scene. When Hamilton caught sight of him, he exclaimed, This is a mortal wound, doctor, and so it would come to pass. Alexander Hamilton died the very next day. Burr's duel with Hamilton was the tragic and dramatic capstone on his four unhappy years as the nation's third vice president. However, for most of the time, Burr's problems were caused not by Hamilton, but rather rivals within his own Democratic-Republican party. The elections of 1800 should have been the highlight of Burr's political career. His innovative campaign tactics and control of the newly forged Tammany machine won New York, and thus the presidency, for the Republican ticket. However, the drawn-out stalemate of early 1801, in which the Electoral College tie between Jefferson and Burr through the election to the House of Representatives, forever tarnished his reputation. There is absolutely no evidence that Burr actively schemed with Federalists to steal the election away from Jefferson. Still, throughout the standoff, Burr refused to take himself out of the running by issuing any form of statement disavowing Federalist support. In the eyes of Jefferson and his closest supporters, this was enough to brand Burr as fundamentally disloyal and untrustworthy. The Virginian's displeasure with his new vice president was evident when it came time to dole out federal government appointments. Burr had, reasonably enough, assumed he would be the administration's point man for issuing lucrative federal patronage jobs in New York. Accordingly, Burr drew up a list of allies he would like to see rewarded with political jobs. Top of this list was his faithful Tammany lieutenant Matthew L. Davis as naval officer of the Port of New York, a position which paid $7,000 per year. The president, however, did not deign to respond to Burr's request. With his appointment stalled, Davis made the trip down to Monticello where he could confront Jefferson in person. Once there, Davis was met with only evasive answers. At one point, the president suddenly reached into the air and snatched a fly that was buzzing near his head. Jefferson held it up for Davis to see and said, Note the remarkable disproportion between one part of the insect and its entire body. The meaning of this cryptic remark was not lost on Davis. Burr and his supporters were only a tiny component of the larger Jeffersonian coalition. They were not in any position to be making demands on the president. Events back home in New York further undermined Burr's position. Federalist Governor John Jay announced his retirement in 1801, and George Clinton, the old incumbent, emerged as the favorite to reclaim the position he had held from 1777 to 1795. In April, he handily defeated the Federalist candidate, Stephen Van Rensselaer, who was married to Hamilton's sister-in-law, Peggy Schuyler. Clinton was an unintended beneficiary of the inroads Burr had made with New York City's working-class voters. The governor carried the city for the first time in his very long career. Clinton's victory, coupled with the gains in the state legislature that Burr had engineered in 1800, placed the Democratic-Republicans in a remarkably strong position in New York State. Critically, the party now had firm control over the State Council of Appointment. This was the body that was responsible for filling most state and local government jobs in New York, including the mayor of New York City, which was not yet an elected position. Since independence New York's mayoralty had been in the hands of staunch federalists James Duane and Richard Varick now the council of appointment named Edward Boned Livingston to the office unlike his predecessors Livingston was a committed democratic republican and a once active member of the Tammany Society Jefferson had already appointed him as New York's US attorney a position he held on to after his move to City Hall. More importantly, the mayor was the scion of one of New York's most powerful political families and the younger brother of Robert Livingston, Jefferson's new ad- ambassador to France. The emerging Clinton-Livingston alliance posed an existential threat to Aaron Burr's political prospects. The two families had the resources, political apparatus, and anti-federalist credentials to dominate the New York Democratic-Republican Party. Already isolated within the Jefferson administration, Burr now ran the risk of becoming irrelevant on his home turf. There was little he could do about it while he was stuck as an impotent vice president in sleepy Washington, D.C. The most dramatic challenge to Burr's position came from the emergence of DeWitt Clinton, the governor's ambitious young nephew. Tall, handsome, and supremely arrogant, the Wit Clinton's contemporaries mockingly nicknamed him the Magnus Apollo. The younger Clinton made a brisk ascent through the state assembly and state senate in the 1790s. Like Mayor Livingston, he had been a member of the Tammany Society before Burr's takeover of the organization. In 1801, Clinton was named to the Council of Appointment through his uncle's influence. Though the Democratic-Republicans styled themselves as the party of the common man, they clearly had no problem with a bit of nepotism. The word is derived from the Italian for nephew. DeWitt's rise was cemented in 1802, when the legislature named him to fill a vacancy in the U.S. Senate. With his eyes set on ever-higher office... The newly minted senator was quick to identify Vice President Burr as a rival who would have to be eliminated. New York's political scene just wasn't big enough for these two colossal ambitions. Clinton now set out on one of the most ruthless press campaigns in the history of the early republic. His chosen tool in this endeavor was James Cheatham, a radical Manchester-born journalist, Who had emigrated to the U.S. in 1798. Burr had been an early patron of Cheatham and had helped him become editor of The American Citizen, New York's leading Republican journal. However, sensing a shift in the political winds, Cheatham jumped to the Clintonian wing of the party. From 1802 he wrote a relentless stream of attacks on the vice president and his followers. Cheatham gleefully resurrected old rumors about Burr's efforts to steal the election of 1800 from Jefferson. Virtually every edition of The American Citizen included references to Burr's alleged sexual improprieties or financial misdeeds. The campaign against Burr entered a new phase when a writer named John Wood attempted to publish a furious, book-length attack on the presidency of John Adams. Wood was no scholar. His work was shoddily written, filled with inaccuracies, and marked by plagiarism. Burr thought this second-rate work would do the Democratic-Republicans no favor, and he sought to prevent its publication. Cheatham pounced on this unforced error. In a lengthy pamphlet, he alleged that Burr's action was motivated by desire to build ties with the Federalists so he could complete his schemes of 1800, and deny Jefferson a second term. The insults flew fast and furious. Burr was habituated to intrigue, cunning, and wicked. A further pamphlet addressed Burr's standing with Democratic-Republicans directly. The vice president's behavior, quote, "...ought to banish you forever from the affections of all parties, but especially the Republicans." Cheatham's attack soon appeared in Republican newspapers across the country, further undermining Burr's national reputation. Most damaging, and unbeknownst to Burr at the time, Cheatham's attack was undertaken with the covert support of Thomas Jefferson. In December 1801, Cheatham wrote to President Jefferson, outlining Burr's supposed efforts to steal the election of 1800, and urging the president to take a hard line against the vice president. Extraordinary enterprises, whose known objects are dishonorable and unjust, call for commensurate means of counteraction. Jefferson responded that Cheatham's letter was, quote, pregnant with considerations, and added that he would, quote, be glad hereafter to receive your daily paper by post. There was no doubt which side the president was taking in the conflict between Burr and Clinton. The rivalry between Burrites and Clintonians exploded in July 1802, when Burr's confidant, John Swartout, accused DeWitt Clinton of trying to destroy Burr's reputation to boost his own career. Clinton, in return, called Swartout, "...a liar, a scoundrel, and a villain." The two men met at the Weehawken Dueling Ground, where Burr and Hamilton would have their deadly interview two years later. Swartout received two gunshot wounds, but refused to yield. Clinton eventually put an end to things by declaring, I am sorry to have hurt you so much. I don't want to hurt him, but I wish I had the principal here. I will meet him when he pleases. The threat to Burr... Swartout's principle was unmistakable. In a particularly painful move, Burr was ousted as director of the Bank of Manhattan, the financial institution he had done so much to establish in the 1790s. By 1803, the bank was under the total control of Clinton loyalists. Efforts to set up a new Burrite bank stalled out in the legislature. In response to the steady stream of attacks coming from Clinton and Cheatham, Burr and his allies decided to set up a newspaper of their own. The Morning Chronicle was to be edited by Dr. Peter Irving, most notable as the older brother of novelist Washington Irving. It was a surprisingly uninspired choice from Burr. Dr. Irving was a fine writer and a genteel man of letters, but he was ill-equipped to counter the vitriol coming from Cheatham, who took to calling his new rival Miss Irving and Her Ladyship. Despite Irving's best efforts, the Morning Chronicle did little to boost Burr's flagging reputation. A more effective counterattack came in the form of a lengthy pamphlet titled, An Examination of the Various Charges Exhibited Against Aaron Burr, The pamphlet was written by William P. Van Ness, Burr's future second, under the pseudonym Aristides. And historians have long speculated that Burr himself had a hand in its authorship. The pamphlet formulated a point-by-point response to the various allegations that had been swirling around Burr since 1800. Van Ness rightly pointed out that it was Jefferson, not Burr, who had ultimately struck a deal with the Federalists in order to obtain the presidency in 1801. The pamphlet took aim at each of Burr's enemies. Cheatham was excoriated as, quote, an open blasphemer of his god, Dewitt Clinton was dubbed cruel by nature, an adept in moral turpitude skilled in all combinations of treachery and fraud. Less damningly, old George Clinton was dismissed as an accommodating trimmer. The Aristides pamphlet was a phenomenon, selling more copies than any pamphlet since Tom Paine's common sense. Yet, it was too little, too late. Burr's reputation within his own party was already beyond saving. With his standing among the Democratic-Republicans battered, Burr took steps to build ties to the Federalists. He sided with the minority party in expressing reservations about some aspects of the Jeffersonian program, most notably the president's efforts to remove dissenting Federalist judges from the federal bench. In 1802, Burr appeared at a Federalist dinner honoring George Washington's birthday and made a toast to the Union of All Honest Men. The Jeffersonians regarded this as a clear call for Federalist support. Despite this tense atmosphere, Burr made one last effort to patch things up in a meeting with Jefferson in January 1804. It did not go well. Unfortunately, we only know about this meeting from notes the president recorded after the fact so we can't be sure what exactly Burr hoped to get out of the conversation. Burr was surely well aware of Jefferson's hostility, even if he did not know of the president's active collaboration with Cheatham and Clinton. It was no secret that Jefferson considered his vice president both disloyal and, more importantly, a possible threat to Virginia's continued domination of the Democratic-Republican Party. Burr was smart enough to recognize that he had little chance of being nominated for a second term as vice president. Yet, Burr was always a man for keeping his options open. According to Jefferson's notes, the vice president raised the prospect of some face-saving appointment. 1804 was likely a lost cause for Burr, yet perhaps his reputation would rebound after a few years in a dignified post abroad, such as ambassador to Britain or France. Jefferson was having none of it. Though the president disingenuously promised not to intervene against Burr in any future election, he shot down any hope of appointing him to a diplomatic position. Jefferson later recorded that Burr's behavior, "...very soon inspired me with disgust." Confirmation of Burr's final breach with the National Democratic Republicans came that spring when the party held its nominating convention for the upcoming presidential election. Jefferson, of course, was selected unanimously as the party's presidential candidate. Burr, however, did not receive a single vote to serve as his running mate. His place on the ticket was taken by George Clinton. Burr was now officially a man without a party. With his back against the wall, he decided to stake his political life on a desperate run for governor of New York. Burr's plan was fairly straightforward. 1804 was set to be a strong year for Jefferson and his allies. With a strong economy, peace abroad, and the national sentiment buoyed by the Louisiana Purchase, Most observers expected the president to achieve an easy re-election. In the end, he carried every state but Connecticut and Delaware. Yet, Jefferson and his party were not universally popular. Federalists and plenty of moderate Republicans had reservations about some of the more radical elements of the president's program, particularly his attacks on the independence of the judiciary. In the Northeast there was growing apprehension about the South and the West's increasing domination of national politics. Burr, with his moderate track record and proven popularity among New York's working classes, believed he was uniquely situated to unite these strands of anti-Jefferson sentiment into a winning coalition. He could win as the leader of the Union of All Honest Men he had spoken of back in 1802. Things got off to a promising start when the Clinton-Livingston faction botched their initial attempt to select a candidate. Their first choice was Chancellor John Lansing, a moderate and widely expected jurist. However, Lansing bristled at the pushy demands the Clintons placed on his candidacy. He soon issued a public statement withdrawing from the race. As a backup, the Democratic-Republicans nominated Morgan Lewis, a state court judge and an in-law of the Livingston family. Lewis was generally regarded as a weak candidate, little more than a tool in the hands of the Clintons and Livingstons. His nomination gave Burr a real chance in the upcoming contest. Even Hamilton acknowledged that Burr's prospect has extremely brightened with the nomination of Lewis. Burr and his Tammany allies now set out to recreate that old campaign magic from the election of 1800. As in that earlier race, Burr and his little band undertook a furious schedule of organizing and electioneering. In a new campaign innovation, Burr himself wrote a campaign theme song... I won't sing it, but here's the chorus. Fell slander, hide your snaky crest. We'll choose the patriot we like best. Burr's cause on naked truth relies and shines more brightly by Cheatham's lies. Burr developed a bold reformist platform which he hoped would appeal to Democratic-Republican voters. He called for a reduction in property qualifications for voting, and hoped to make the mayor of New York an elective office. Burr's loyalists embarked on an active press campaign. Peter Irving, editor of the pro-Burr Morning Chronicle, praised the candidate's open and manly conduct, his masterly displays of eloquence, and the commanding dignity of his eye. Burr was a self-made man in contrast to the aristocrats of the Clinton-Livingston faction. One pro-Burr publication noted that the jobs and favors awarded to the Clintons and the Livingstons cost New York State the princely sum of $87,500 each year. James Cheatham's American Citizen, of course, continued to attack Burr in furious language. Lurid attention was paid to Burr's sex life. One pamphlet called him the disgraceful debauchee who permitted an infamous prostitute to insult and embitter the dying moments of his injured wife. Burr's home was compared to a bordello, and his supporters were likened to male prostitutes. Cheatham mocked the supposed slavish devotion of Burr's followers in a satirical piece called The Creed of the Burrites. I believe that Aaron Burr has done more during the late revolution to advance the liberties of America than General Washington himself. I believe that Aaron Burr is so good, pious, and devout a man that after he has been made governor of the state of New York, he will then be made Pope of Rome. End quote. Meanwhile, Burke continued his outreach to Federalists. Prominent members of the party, including John Jay and former Lieutenant Governor Stephen Van Rensselaer, expressed support for his candidacy. However, more controversial speculation centered on a group of hard-line Federalists, led by former Secretary of State Timothy Pickering of Massachusetts. This faction, alarmed by the increasing power of the South in national politics, hatched a plan for New England to secede from the Union. Pickering and his supporters reached out to Burr in hopes that, as governor, he would lead New York into their movement. Burr was cordial and agreed that, "...the northern states must be governed by Virginia, or govern Virginia. There is no middle course." Yet, there is no evidence that he actively participated in this secessionist cause. In typical Burr fashion, his interlocutors had trouble pinning him down. In the words of one Federalist, quote, Perhaps no man's language was ever so apparently explicit and, at the same time, so covert and indefinite. Burr's inroads with the Federalists were hampered by Hamilton's staunch opposition to his candidacy. Though he was not the dominant force he'd been a few years earlier, Hamilton still commanded great respect from Federalist audiences. His vocal stance surely cost Burr votes. In the end, all of Burr's efforts were not enough. He simply did not have the firepower to match the combined resources and impressive machinery of the Clinton-Livingston alliance. The power of the Clintons only increased in 1803 when reports of financial improprieties forced the incumbent mayor, Edward Livingston, to resign. Fearing prosecution, Livingston fled to New Orleans, where he rebuilt his career at as a U.S. Senator, and later Secretary of State under Andrew Jackson. Livingston was replaced by none other than DeWitt Clinton, who left the Senate to take over City Hall. New Yorkers still sometimes like to talk about the mayor as having the second-hardest job in America. Yet, from our modern vantage point, it seems quite strange that a young, ambitious politician would choose local government over national office. At the time, however, City Hall provided DeWitt Clinton with far more opportunity to further his family's stranglehold on New York's politics. Coupled with their ties to Jefferson and their control of the Council of Appointment, the Clintons now held a virtual monopoly on federal, state, and local patronage in the Empire State a nearly unchecked power to reward friends and punish those who crossed them. Despite these obstacles, Burr's Tammany machinery held firm, and he carried New York City. However, his margins were greatly reduced from 1800. Burr's victory in Manhattan was not nearly enough to offset Lewis's strength upstate, particularly in the old Clinton stronghold of the Hudson Valley. The final tally wasn't even close, Lewis won by well over 8,000 votes statewide. This was the largest margin of victory in any New York gubernatorial election to date. Cheatham, with a customary lack of good grace, exulted in Burr's downfall. So much for the union of all honest men, he jeered. Burr tried to take things in stride. He was nonchalant in a letter to his daughter, Theodosia. The election is lost by a great majority. Tant mieux. However, the collapse of Burr's ambitions clearly took a toll. We now find him in that fragile state of mind that resulted in the duel of Hamilton. If, as we suggested at the start of this episode, Burr believed that this duel was necessary to boost his flagging reputation, he would soon be well disabused of that notion. News of Hamilton's death sparked an unprecedented wave of public mourning in New York and around the country. Hamilton's funeral on July 14th came at the end of a massive procession through the streets of lower Manhattan. The city's buildings were draped in black, flags were hung at half-mast, and ships docked in New York Harbor fired their guns in salute. The procession was led by a military detachment... They were followed by members of the Order of the Cincinnati, the Faculty of Columbia College, and members of the Society of Mechanics and Tradesmen. In his eulogy, Hamilton's old friend, Gouverneur Morris, preached forgiveness and moderation. Yet, it was inevitable that some of this outpouring of grief would turn against Hamilton's killer. Even formerly sympathetic outlets, like the pro-federalist Evening Post, called Burr an assassin. Clinton and Cheatham, never friends of Hamilton in life, saw an opportunity to benefit from his death. In typically restrained prose, Cheatham wrote of Burr, quote, "...to appease his resentment and to gratify his ambition, he is capable of wading through the blood of his fellow citizens and laughing at the lamentations of widows and orphans." Mayor Clinton encouraged New York's prosecutors to charge Burr with murder. The ever-loyal Matthew L. Davis went to jail for refusing to answer the authorities' questions about the duel. Burr's second Van Ness and his friend John Swartout both went into hiding. After remaining as a virtual prisoner in his home for ten days, Burr made a clandestine late-night escape across the Hudson. From there, he went south, where a more relaxed attitude towards dueling and general anti-Hamilton sentiment ensured him a more positive reception. He ended up staying at the plantation home of Pierce Butler, a former Senate colleague from South Carolina. But Burke could not hide out there forever. After all, he was the sitting vice president of the United States for a few more months. Burr returned to Washington when Congress went back into session in the fall. Though potential criminal liability prevented him from setting foot in either New York or New Jersey, Burr met with a surprisingly warm reception. As president of the Senate, Burr oversaw the impeachment trial of Supreme Court Justice Samuel Chase. This was a politically motivated case, with the Republicans trying to purge an outspoken Federalist from the federal bench. Burr earned kudos for the even-handed and sober way he managed proceedings. In the words of one observer, quote, he is undoubtedly one of the best presiding officers I ever witnessed. To Jefferson's chagrin, Burr was widely credited with helping to secure Chase's eventual acquittal. Ironically, Burr had done his part to save the independent judiciary, one of the prized features of Hamiltonian ideology. With the chase trial completed, Burr rose and delivered an impromptu farewell address. His tone was thoughtful yet modest. He praised the Senate as the safeguard of American liberty. If the Constitution be destined ever to perish by the sacrilegious hand, of a demagogue or the usurper, which God avert, its expiring agonies will be witnessed on this floor. He concluded with an emotional farewell to the place he had worked for several years. It was Aaron Burr at his oratorical best. These remarks were met with a frankly bizarre outpouring of sentiment from the assembled senators. In the words of Senator Samuel Mitchell of New York, quote, Many of these senators gave way, and they burst into tears. There was a solemn and silent weeping for perhaps five minutes. According to a newspaper report, quote, The whole Senate was in tears and so unmanned that it was half an hour before they could recover themselves. With this remarkable scene behind him, Burr made his way out of the Senate chamber for the last time. He would never hold elected office again. And yet, Aaron Burr was not quite finished. He could not help himself from becoming involved in one last scheme, which would do so much, more even than the duel with Hamilton, to shatter his long-term reputation. None of the controversies and scandals that trailed Burr throughout his political career can match his Western adventure and subsequent treason trial, for sheer strangeness and mystery. But it's also a story that takes us pretty far afield from the nominal focus of this podcast, Tammany Hall. So my plan is to release a bonus mini-episode on Burr's wheelings and dealings out west, as well as his rather melancholy later years. Keep an eye out for that in the coming days. In the meantime, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. We're officially up on Spotify, so check out the show over there if that's your pod delivery service of choice. Thank you for listening.